knickknacks. Um, feel free, grab one of those, and uh, they're on the back table, and, uh, and, and you can follow along with the sermon um, on, on your level. Well, our text, as I mentioned, it's, it's all of Matthew 24, verses 1 through 31. I'm just going to read uh, the first five verses to get us started, and then, uh, and then I'll pray for us, and we will we'll jump in. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your word, by your scriptures. That there are many voices we hear throughout the week. Many voices we we speak to ourselves that are spoken to us. But we we pause now and quiet all the voices around us to to hear your voice. So we ask that your voice would be loud and clear, that we would hear it and we would follow after you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the end of the world. Few topics are more controversial, interesting, or more profitable in our day and age. A year ago, uh, Sarah Goodman wrote an article in the New York Daily News entitled, Why We're Doomed, where she pointed out that there were, at that point, six upcoming movies about the end of the world, which Hollywood had spent a billion dollars making. That for Hollywood, the end of the world is clearly good for business. They know you're going to spend money, so they make the movies, and we go and we watch. And, and we Christians, we've been some of the most willing consumers for, for this stuff. Uh, maybe you were familiar growing up with the, uh, the series Left Behind. Um, I read that, uh, or some of that growing up. The this, this series started with God rapturing Christians out of the world and up into heaven, just millions of people disappearing at once. And what I always found interesting about that was um, God left, left your clothes behind. If you got raptured up into heaven, he took your clothes and he folded them into a neat pile, um, which is interesting to me because God was, was less meticulous about the people he left behind than he was about the clothes left behind. So uh, if you were a pilot and you were flying a, pa- a plane, um, you got raptured away and your, your clothes were piled up nicely folded in front of the plane controls, which now no one was controlling the plane. And so there were lots of plane crashes um, all over the world because of the rapture, which is maybe why I'm still terrified of flying to this day. But um, as, long as, as long as human beings have, have been living, we've been wondering what happens at the end. What, what's going to come at the end of the world? And so not surprisingly, Jesus gets asked about the end of the world. But what he says, at least to me, is surprising. Last week we listened to Jesus uh, rail against the pastors, the spiritual leaders of his, his day. And I, I don't normally do this, but that was, that was an important text. And so if you missed last week, I encourage you to go listen to the podcast um, because it was uncomfortable for me. Jesus was speaking about me, about people who do the work I do, people who uh, are spiritually bad leaders, who are spiritual malpractitors, bad pastors. And he, he lays into the sins that are common for the, the people who do the work that um, that I do, but if, if you listen to all of the scripture that we looked at last week, you may have you may have left a little disappointed or wondering because Jesus mentioned the end of the world 
last week. He gets to the end of this long rant against pastors, and he, he turns his sights to the entire city of Jerusalem, and he says two things that we didn't deal with at all that, that are really going to be everything we deal with this morning. So the end of chapter 23, verses 38 and 39, here are the two things Jesus says. So see, Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, he's making two claims there. Claim one is that Jerusalem is going to be laid desolate. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped away. And claim two, Jesus says, I'm going away. I'm leaving. And I'm not coming again until the end of the world. I'm getting ready to leave, but I'm coming back at the end of the world. That's claim two. Claim one is, Jerusalem, you're going to be destroyed. And so the disciples now, they want to know in Matthew 24, what does this mean? What's going to happen? When is the end coming? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And so Jesus takes all of Matthew 24 and 25. It's this long teaching to the disciples to answer those two questions for them. And, and Christians like me who love, who love into the world discussions, who have read what Jesus has said over and over again, we want to know what's going to happen, what's it going to look like, what's, what's going to get blown up, right? We want to know. We watch the movies. We, we're interested in these things. But I have to say, as, as someone who, who read Left Behind and spent a considerable amount of time wondering why God folded people's clothes who he raptured, why that mattered, um, someone who's thought about these things, I, I have to say, in, in digging into what Jesus says in Matthew 24 through one, verses 1 through 34, I, have compl- I had completely missed the thing Jesus says over and over and over again here. I mean, it's actually almost impressive how badly I read these verses um, because he says it so much. Eleven times he's going to warn you about something again and again and again. And I had never encountered it until I just sat down and read the text a couple weeks ago. But I see it now, and and I hope you you see it. He warns you about it eleven times. When it comes to the the world winding down, the end coming near, he warns you about this eleven times. Do not be led astray. By a false Jesus. Don't settle for less than the real Jesus. And the closer you get to the end of the world, the more false Jesus has come along and offer you a different way than the real Jesus. And maybe you hear that, and that sounds incredibly underwhelming, right? There's nothing getting blown up there, right? There's no, like, weird antichrist figures with horns coming out of their head. Like, there's none of that. It's just Jesus saying, you're going to have lots of opportunities to be led away to a false Jesus. Don't do it. So if that's underwhelming to you, and you're sitting there wondering, why would anyone ever follow a false Jesus anyway? Like, following the real Jesus doesn't sound that interesting. Why would a false Jesus sound um, interesting? Well, that's why you need to hear what Jesus says, what's going to happen in the end times, as we wind the world down. That if you follow Jesus all the way to the end, you're following a Messiah, a Jesus, who, who will first, he'll look like a worldly failure. He'll bring division into your life. And you're going to have to wait for him. That if you follow the real Jesus, you're going to experience, you're going to, he's going to look like a complete failure at times. He's going to make your life harder. There's going to be division you're going to have to face because of him. And thirdly, you're going to have to wait for him. And so that Jesus is saying, don't settle for less than me. And I want to take, take, a, take into those, each of those three things why it's, it's hard to wait for the real Jesus. Why it's hard to, um, to, to, to follow the real Jesus all the way into the end. And first is, is because the real Jesus, he often appears to be a worldly failure. 
So Jesus, he just told the disciples in Jerusalem that the most important city in all the world to them is going to be, it's going to be destroyed. And he says that to them in the temple. And so they, they, they leave the temple. They go, they go on a hike out into the Mount of Olives. And, and, and as they're walking out there, no doubt they're, they're ruminating over what Jesus has just said. And, and when they get to the Mount of Olives, um, they, they want to ask Jesus what he, what he means. And that's not surprising because the Mount of Olives, it actually gives you a very scenic view of the city of Jerusalem. They knew. Here's that, that view today from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Have you noticed that the large wall there kind of at the bottom, that was the original temple wall. Um, the, the temple sat where the, the Gold Dome Mosque um, sits there now. So there's this, this perfect view into the temple and into Jerusalem. And as they're, they're looking at this, this beautiful temple that would, would have been the most stunning building they would have seen in their entire lives. It, it stood 15 stories tall. It was made of marble and gold. It had white stone, which, um, which laid over the top of it that shone incredibly bright, almost like the sun in the day. It would have stood out among the city. This building was fit for worship, fit for God to dwell in. And so the disciples, they're reflecting on Jesus, just said, well, all Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And they're looking at this beautiful building, and they must be thinking to themselves, well, yeah, everything but that's getting destroyed. And so they, they take a moment. They say, Jesus, look at this. Look at this temple we built. Look at this place of worship. And Jesus says this in response. You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The Jesus, he kind of ups his prophecy game. Here. He's already said, Jerusalem's getting destroyed. And now he says, this, this building that you're so in love with, there are going to be people who come in and take it apart stone by stone. And that happened 40 years later. 35, 40 years later, after Jesus said this, Rome invaded Jerusalem, and their armies went into the temple complex and took apart the temple stone by stone. And no wonder Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, when, when that happens, some of you are going to see this. Don't be led astray at that point. Don't be led astray by a false Jesus. Because the real Jesus has just crushed their dreams. <laughs> he just said, hey, th this temple, that you're gonna, most of the Christians worshipped there early on. The Christian, Christians didn't have a building. They were, they were Jewish people. They were still a part of the Jewish faith. They worshipped in that building. Jesus says, you're, you're going to watch it get, get torn apart stone by stone. The, the temple that, that, that houses God's presence, the temple that you worship in, Jesus' temple... It's getting taken apart stone by stone. The real Jesus lets his own temple get raised to the ground. And I would say one sign that you're, you're tempted to fall off for a false Jesus is you need signs of external success in order to keep following him. Because everyone in Jesus' day, they, they would have assumed the Messiah, it's gonna, he's going to defeat Rome. He's going to defeat any state power that stand against God and his people. But Jesus says the exact opposite is going to happen. The very enemies of God, the state powers that stood against God, they're going to come in and they're going to desecrate the temple and they're going to take it apart stone by stone. Can you follow a Jesus that looks like a worldly failure? Because in our American culture, I, I don't think we want that Jesus. Right? We're attracted to winners. Right? We, want what's, we want what's big. We want what has money. We want what the crowd is going after. And so we structure our businesses, our churches, our lives around external success. More money, more people, better buildings. And pastors are the worst at this. We, really, I mean, we are the worst at this. And when people ask me, hey, how's the church going? The, the first two things I want to answer that question with is, well, this many people attend. 
And this many more people attend than used to uh, attend. And the second thing I want to say, we're getting ready to buy some land. We got, we're, going to buy some, we're going to build a building on it. We're going to buy land, build some buildings. And that's what I want to say, external signs of success. And what Jesus does here is he points to the greatest sign of external success the Old Testament people of God had, the Jewish people had, and he says, that is getting taken apart stone by stone. And the, pro- the problem, it's not money. It's not that we shouldn't want more people to come. We should. The problem isn't better buildings. Believe, I, believe me, I want a building. I still want a building, even after this, this text. The, rather, our problem is the disciples' problem. We, we think external success is a sign of God's success. But read the Bible for two minutes, and God often looks like the biggest colossal failure that you can ever encounter. I mean, just we're, we're spending the next several months looking at the last week of Jesus' life. Um, we start in January. We're going all the way up until Easter. And everything up until Sunday morning when Jesus came out of the tomb uh, three days later, everything about his last week is a failure. He comes in. Everyone likes him and says Hosanna and wants to hear from him, wants to speak to him. And, and a few days later, he's going to end up crucified, mocked, and dead and put in a tomb. In just a few days, Jesus goes from toast of the town to crucified, convicted criminal, sentenced to death. He's a failure in that week until Sunday. Now, I just thought, do you need God to always win? Can you follow a Jesus that looks, he just looks like a failure. He makes life more difficult on you. He's not a winner. He introduces difficult things into your, to your life. Now, I've been reflecting on this question a lot because in two weeks, a week from Friday, um, I, along with, with Dennis Stewart and Jeff Boss, will be traveling uh, to Kunming, China for, uh, for a week, to spend a week there with the leaders of our, our global uh, partner, the China Partnership. And, and the church in, in China is, by all external measures, a complete failure. Um, that, that they have no cultural influence. Right? They don't have any cool politicians or uh, cool uh, celebrities on TV uh, spouting uh, or, or praising the church. They, few churches have buildings. Um, a law has just been passed that, that causes, has caused many pastors and Christians to be concerned for their safety. They, they fear a, a, a religious crackdown is coming soon. The leader of the China Partnership we'll be spending time with uh, cannot have his name or his picture on the website of the China Partnership because it, it would attract attention and probably lead to um, suffering for, for him. And I, I've just been wondering, could I follow Jesus in that context? Did you? All right, make it hit, hit a little closer. Let's say, let's say finally we just imagine we get into a building someday. We have our, it's our own building. It's beautiful. We're looking at it, right? You just, you pull up one Sunday and you just think, look at this. We did it. We finally, we did it, right? And we go, we worship there. And, and, and one day the United States government comes in and takes it apart, takes that building apart brick by brick. And you watch it go down. Would that moment increase your faith in Jesus or devastate it? That's why Jesus is saying, don't let anyone lead you astray. There are false Jesuses. They'll come along, and they're, they're successful, and they win, and they're great. Don't follow them. Jesus lets his own temple get raised to the ground. He lets his own church experience suffering and persecution. Jesus is, often looks like a worldly failure, the real Jesus. So that's where we start. That's point one. Point two, then the real Jesus, he'll bring division into your life. So now, now that Jesus has announced the temple, it's going to be destroyed. The disciples, they're thinking about the end of the world. And so they ask Jesus, they ask him two questions, both of them in verse 3. I'm going to put a slide up to help us. Um, because all of Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is answering these two questions. 
So the question first is, when will these things be? The Jesus has just said the temple is going to be taken apart stone by stone. So the disciples say, when's that going to happen? When will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? Question two is, when is the, the close of the age? When is the end of the age? When is the end of the world? And so as I said, all of Matthew 24 and 25 answers those two questions. But one thing we have to understand that, that makes these chapters tough for us to interpret is the disciples thought they were just asking one question. They had assumed the destruction of the temple is going to end the world, right? They couldn't imagine a world existing without a temple. So when they ask those two questions, they think it's, it's just one question. And so Jesus will eventually get around, and this is probably more next week's sermon, Jesus will get around to eventually saying, no, these, aren't, these are two different events. There's going to be a lot of time in between them. But for our text today, Jesus, he's a little confusing because he sort of weaves in and out of answering those two different questions about what would take place when Jerusalem would be destroyed, which happened in 87, and what will happen at the end of the world. And it's not because Jesus was confused. It's because he thinks about the end times a little bit differently than how you and I think about the end times. The Jesus, he thinks of the end times more as it's a season. It's a season between his death and resurrection and his second coming. And so you and I live in that season. The disciples live in that season. And a season um, doesn't have an exact end date, right? So we're, we're in a season of winter right now. We don't know precisely when winter will end. We have a guess, right? It's hopefully it's March 1st. Right? That's what we're, all, we're all praying for that. We're fasting for that, right? So it's going to have an end, but we, we don't know when it ends, but we know the conditions of winter, right? Everything's terrible. It's cold, right? The Patriots always make the Super Bowl, which makes us question the existence of God, right? That's what happens, this time of year, people get angrier, life is more miserable, the sky is gray. That's winter. We know the seasons and the, the conditions. And so for Jesus, what he's saying is the end times, they have certain conditions to them. And, and, and the destruction of Jerusalem is sort of a prototype of the conditions of the end times. And so you and I, we're living in the season of the end times, which doesn't mean that the world ends a week from now or that it's coming to an end soon. It just means we live in the the time of, of history when the conditions are in times. That's the, the season we, we live. And one of the conditions that happened at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, that the disciples, many of the disciples lived through, that also is, is, is a condition we live through as being a part of the end times, is that, is that following the real Jesus introduces division into your life. But look at, at, at verse 9. Here's what Jesus says. It says, then they, and I think he's talking about, again, Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, but he's also thinking throughout the season of the end times. Then they, the state powers, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The Jesus here, he mentions two ways that following him, following the real him, will introduce division into your life in this season of the end times. The first is that if you follow the real Jesus, you're, you're going to be hated. And there's a tendency within the cultural age today um, that says, well, no, if you follow Jesus, you should be liked. Right? And if, if, well, you know, if the church just kind of threw out some doctrine that, that doesn't look so good and made us more, uh, you know, Attractable to, attractive to the culture, then we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be hated. And that, that doesn't work. Jesus says, you're going to be hated for my name's 
sake. And, and so you will face opposition for following Jesus. You will. For some Christians, that has meant you know, trial by state power or um, trial by local municipal, municipality that can, that can, that can you know, cause suffering or, or perse- persecution. And I realize that that feels unrealistic, over the top to us, but this is being made real to me in a week and a half. I will be spending time with people for whom this is a real question. Is the state going to barge into our worship service, take down our names, and question us? There will be people I will meet over the next uh, couple weeks and over the next few months as we engage the China Partnership. That has happened to them. But it's not, this isn't just about death or persecution. It's also about the reality. Listen, as a student in high school, I was made fun of for being a, a Christian. That frequently I have conversations with people who say incredibly nasty and hateful things about people who hold positions I hold to as a Christian. There are things Jesus says that our culture finds reprehensible, embarrassing, and and destructive. And if you follow that real Jesus, you will have the same reaction to you. You will be hated for his name's sake. He says that. That's a condition of the end time. And second, Jesus says, you will, division will be introduced into your life because of what he calls lawlessness. What does that mean? Um, Jesus says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because there will be increased lawlessness, people will stop loving their fellow Christians and they will stop loving the real Jesus. And so what does that mean? Well, Jesus, he's saying, his law brings division into your, your life. His ethical demands, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for those who persecute you. Um, um, forgive your enemy. The, his law for your life, his ethical demands, they make demands on your life. They, make, they, they, put, they create a division in your heart. Do I follow Jesus or do I follow the spirit of my age? And so Jesus, according, uh, according to Jesus, at the end times, many people will decide they'd rather live in accordance with the spirit of the age, they're going to live lawlessly, and so their love for Jesus will, will go out. It'll grow cold. And so get, get specific. Give me an example. Well, I'll give you the most extreme example, which is um, uh, Frederick Douglass was in uh, the news um, this week, week, not because he's still alive, but because he was, he was born into slavery in the 1800s, and, and he was one of the chief voices, chief architects for why slavery um, was, uh, was, was made illegal within our, our society. He was influential. Um, Douglas himself was a Christian, he was a preacher, um, and he wrote a compelling autobiography about the slave trade and his life as a slave in 1845. But if, if you read that book as a Christian, you, you're, it's devastating. It's, re, it's a hard read, because he does not hold back about Christians and how they lived in the South. And here's how he summarized some of his encounters with Christians in the South during that time. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. That's devastating. And I mean, it raises the question, how could Christians have acted like this? I mean, there's an entire book of the Bible, Galatians, which one of the primary themes is Paul saying, you can't be a racist and believe the gospel. You can't. 
And so how, why have so many Christians tried? It's an extreme example, but it's exactly what Jesus means when he says lawlessness will increase and our love for him will grow cold. Jesus is saying is that in this season, in the end times, there will be people who have no interest in obeying him. No interest in obeying the real Jesus. They don't love him. They love themselves. They love their own way of life. They're going to live how they want to live, and they're going to follow a Jesus of their own making who excuses all they do. In Douglas's life, it's an extreme, right? That history is an extreme, but it's a well-worn path. Many have followed throughout history. One of the most compelling false Jesuses out there today is the false Jesus who doesn't expect you to obey him. It's a Jesus, he wants you to live how, how you want. Follow your heart. Jesus, he doesn't really care how you live your life. He just wants you to be happy. And if your happiness conflicts with Jesus' ethical demands, his law for your life, your happiness is more important. So chase that. You don't have to go far to a church to find this. I mean, they'll throw out teachings that Jesus clearly taught himself because they make you unhappy or that they're not your desire. You don't want to follow them. But Jesus is saying the more you love yourself and the more you hate his law, the more actually your love is growing cold towards him, the real Jesus. And so I would ask, do you love, do you love his law? That a sign you're following the fa- a false Jesus is that you don't want to obey him anymore. But do you want to do everything Jesus tells you to do? Because Jesus said explicitly, if you love me, not, you'll feel really warm feelings in your heart about me. You'll really love church. It'll be an emotional high for you. Life will be better. No, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So do you love him? Or is your love growing cold towards him? But don't be led astray. The real Jesus introduces division into your life. People will hate you because you follow him. <laughs> Try and obey his law. Your, your own heart will feel a sense of division as to whether or not you should follow his teaching or follow the spirit of the age. Do not be led astray. Do not follow after a false Christ. So the real Jesus, he looks like a worldly failure. He, he will introduce division into your life. And in case there's anybody still interested in following the real Jesus, um, thirdly, he makes you wait. So Jesus, he's warned the disciples that when Jerusalem is going to be overthrown, it's going to be an increased sense of persecution for them. That's true. That happened in AD 70. But then he begins to talk about something called, uh, in verses 15 through 21, he talks about something called the abomination of desolation. Which is, You don't have to have ever read the Bible to be like, that sounds terrible. I don't want to, I don't want to know what that is. It sounds awful. Right? The abomination of desolation. So what, what is that? Well, it's, it's from Daniel 9. Um, and, and Daniel, in Daniel 9, he was, he was prophesying about something that was going to happen um, a couple hundred years after his, his own life. And what he was prophesying about was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, a, a Greek ruler who, who lived in Jerusalem during uh, 175 to 164 B.C., so a couple hundred years before Jesus lived, this guy lived, and the Jewish people hated him, <clears throat> excuse me, for good reason, because he hated them. The feeling was very mutual. Um, and so what, what he did to them was he, he, he persecuted them religiously. Uh, he tore down their worship spaces. He forced them to worship Zeus as their god. And to prove his point, uh, legend has it that he entered into the temple and sacrificed a pig, which was considered unclean um, to the Jewish people. It was, it was an animal that should never have even eaten, let alone entered into the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of God to Zeus, which is what Daniel says is the abomination of desolation. 
And what Jesus says is something like that is going to happen again um, in the future. And I would say good Christians disagree about what this exactly means. Um, I'll give it my, my best shot. I think Jesus, when he says the abomination of desolation is going to happen again, I think he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, some Christians also see it's going to happen again. The temple is going to be rebuilt, and another moment like this is going to happen. I don't know exactly, but I do, I do feel confident Jesus is referring to the first destruction of Jerusalem here, because what happened when Rome invaded Jerusalem in AD 70 to destroy it, it would have been as devastating as what Antiochus Epiphanes did 200 years prior. At the Roman army, they entered into the temple, and they entered in with flags that carried the image of Caesar on them, which Caesar, in Roman culture, was worshipped as a god. So these false god images, they go into the temple, they go into the holy of holies, they go into the place where people worshipped God, where God's presence dwelt, and they took that building apart stone by stone. The disciples watching that would have thought, abomination and desolation, Daniel 9, this is, this is as bad as what happened then. And Jesus says, when that happens, when Rome comes and obeys, and, and Jerusalem is destroyed, and the temple is torn apart, you know, stone by stone, there are going to be a, be a lot of people in that day who say, I'm the Christ, I'm Jesus, and I'm going to rescue you from Jerusalem, from, or from the Roman power. But here's what Jesus is saying. When he says, all these false Christs are going to, going to come up and say, I'm going to save you, but don't believe them, because I, the real Jesus, the real Christ, I'm not going to come and save you. The temple's going to go away. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. You're going to have to wait for me. This raises the question, why would anyone wait for a Jesus like that? Who says, I know in 35 years, untold suffering, destruction, my own temple's going to be raised to the ground. It's all going to happen, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Why follow that Jesus? And maybe you're not a Christian and you think, why, yeah, why would you follow that Jesus? Like, religion is supposed to make you happier and give you a, a more balanced life and, a, and a, you know, a sturdier foundation on which to live. And Jesus is just saying, well, hey, your entire city is going to be destroyed and I'm not going to do anything about it. That doesn't sound like a great follow, right? Or if you're a Christian, right, you've had this experience at some point, my guess, is you've waited on God. Your life is unraveled. Things have fallen apart. You've waited on God to show up, to move, to act, to do something, and he never came. So why wait for the real Jesus? Two reasons. First is, is he knows more than you. Jesus makes a lot of prophecies in, in these verses, and I, I just want to unpack two that should give you a confidence. Jesus knows more about what's happening in this world than you do. And the first prophecy, it's, it's in verse 14, which is really stunning. Jesus, Jesus just said to his disciples, um, the state powers of the day, they're going to they're kill you and they're going to persecute you. So get ready for that. And then he says, he says this, But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I, mean, I, can't, I can only imagine the disciples hearing that and thinking, you are, you're delusional, Jesus. I mean, Jesus has like 12 people that are interested in him at this point. And Jesus just said those 12 people, are gonna, some of them are going to die. Some of them are going to be persecuted. Um, and, and beyond that, uh, travel in that day, it was incredibly expensive. It was incredibly difficult. And, and Jesus says, yet, um, this gospel I preach is going into all the world. And what Jesus said, it's come true. 
Now, where we stand in this, I Google mapped it, where I stand is 6,580 miles from where Jesus stood and said those words. And between this spot and every mile in between this spot and where he stood and spoke these words, there is a Christian today who will worship Jesus as God. Jesus, he, he was right. And you go the other direction. You go towards China from where Jesus said that. It's 4,100 miles to the city I'll be in two weeks from now. In between where Jesus spoke and Kunming, China, every one of those miles, there is a Christian who's worshiping Jesus as God this day. And I don't, listen, whether, if you're a Christian, that should give you an incredible confidence. Jesus knows more about this world than you are. And if you're not a Christian, you have to, you have to wrestle with that. I mean, Jesus, he's delusional. How, how in the world would he have known that was going to happen unless he knew that was going to happen? That's one prophecy. The other prophecy is, is Jesus saying, this temple that you're looking at right now, it's going to be taken apart stone by stone. You have to, like in that day, they didn't have bombs. They didn't have artillery. For that to happen, the army had to be so angry with the Jewish people. They had to be willing to go in and take the long, painstaking work of taking apart a building stone by stone. And if you remember the picture from earlier, some of those stones weighed thousands of pounds. It was very hard work. And yet 35, after, 35 years after Jesus said that, that exact thing happened. Rome went in and took apart the temple stone by stone. And maybe you're hearing that, but yeah, Tim, the Gospels, they were written long after Jesus was dead, long after that happened, and they just put those words into Jesus. Now, that doesn't work. The Gospel of Mark, who has the same prediction that Jesus made, even the most liberal scholars acknowledge the Gospel of Mark had to have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem, sometime in the early, 60, um, early 60s A.D., Five, ten years before Jerusalem was destroyed, which means there, there, were, there, were little, there were copies of this saying of Jesus circulating around Christians before Jerusalem was destroyed, before the temple was taken apart stone by stone. And either Jesus got really lucky, or he, he knows more than you. He sees the world in a different way than you see the world. And maybe you don't want to wait for him. Maybe you don't think... He'll come through from you. Maybe he's disappointed you. Maybe life has become hard for you. Maybe you're suffering. You're devastated because he's not showing up in ways you want him to show up. Don't abandon him. Don't be led astray to some false Jesus. Wait for him. He knows what you're going through with more intimacy than what you know you're going through. He knew it was going to happen 35 years out. He knows what's going on in your life now. Wait. Wait for him. So one, he knows more than you. That's why you can wait for him. And two, he's coming back for you. After Jesus unpacks the, the, how terrible the abomination of desolation is, he, he's gonna, he quotes Daniel again. It's a passage we preached on back in October and November. He quotes Daniel 7, this figure that rides on the clouds. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus, he just just gets done saying, I'm not going to come for you when Jerusalem gets destroyed. But there's a day coming when I'm going to come on the clouds and my trumpet's going to go out. And I'm going to gather every person who worships me. Back to myself. He's coming back for us. That look for my return, Jesus says. When you, when you look at the clouds, remember there's a day coming. I'm going to ride on those clouds into this world for your rescue. 
There's a day coming. He will set everything right. He will make everything sad come untrue. He will make everything unjust be replaced with justice. He will place war with peace. He is coming back. Read the New Testament, and that promise and that hope is everywhere. Because Jesus, he's realistic about the life he's calling you to. He's realistic. Listen, you follow him. You follow the real Jesus. It's, it's going to mean that you're going to have division. You're going to have to wait for him. He's going to look like a failure at times. And there's going to be all sorts of people that offer you a vision of Jesus that gets rid of all of those things. And Jesus is saying, do not be led astray to them. Don't be led astray. Look to the clouds. But Jesus said, you will not mistake the real me when I come back. You, you cannot mistake the real me. And if you're in a place this morning, you're, you're sitting, you're downcast, you're wondering if he's, if he's worth the wait, if you're wondering if he really will come again, if you're tempted to follow another way, another, another religion, another false way or a false Jesus, remember this, this Jesus that rides the clouds, that judges kings and will bring perfect justice, who has no limit to his glory or his power. This same Jesus who rides the clouds went to a cross for you, was stripped naked and nailed to a cross for you, to save you, to rescue you. And if he went to that, those links to, to rescue you once, he is coming again. He will not forget you. And so wait for him. Look to the clouds. Do not settle for some false Jesus. The, for the real, the real Jesus, the one who bought you with his cross, has not even begun to pour his riches out onto you. Let us pray. Father, we pray the prayer of the ancient church as we reflect on this promise you have made to us. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you fill our hearts with the vision of your coming? We ask you to to come now and to complete the work you have begun in us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that the anticipation of your coming would motivate and empower our service. Lord, help us to not settle for anything less than the real Jesus, but with fervent prayer and endurance, wait for you to come. We wait, Lord, and we long for you to come. And so we pray with the church of old and the church that will pray this until the day comes. Come, Lord Jesus.